it eventually got to the point where they said, look, we, we love it. We just, would, if you could help us by making clear calls to actions and helping the Netflix audience to follow the journey. And we said, that's good feedback, that's constructive. We can work with that. So we went back to the team. We sat down with the script writers and we said, how can we solve this? Because it was constructive and we recognized the value in it. And so we knew we had to get Liam Neeson back in studio again, which wasn't going to be easy. So we contacted him. We're in COVID-19 lockdown. He's not going to studio in New York. He's in his country home. And so we said, okay, but, but he was very willing and gracious. He said, I'll do it. So we sent a team up to his house and originally a hurricane came and his electricity went. And it was a mad scramble. It was a really funny few weeks. Welcome to What Are We Talking About, a podcast produced by Water Online. Hosts Jim Laurier of Maisie Injector Company and Adam Tank of Transcend Water, a dynamic boomer millennial combo, will help you demystify how to build a better brand for your business, keep current and prospective customers engaged with your company, and ultimately grow your sales. They interview some of the most interesting and unique water professionals who have used the art of storytelling to move the needle for themselves and for their organizations. Welcome, Paul O'Callaghan. Really happy to have you as our guest today. Paul's the founder and CEO of Blue Tech Research and also the executive producer of the new film uh, Brave Blue World. And we're really excited to have you. Welcome. Thanks very much. A pleasure, Jim. Yeah. So the way we like to start and introduce our guests, Paul, is to kind of tell the audience how we got to know you, how we got to know your work. So for me, early on when you started Blue Tech Research, you were very kind enough when you found out that I was uh, coming from the mining industry to provide me a very comprehensive report on water treatment in the mining industry. And to this day, I still use it as reference material. So um, you know, still, still very valuable resource for me. Good to hear. And Paul, for myself, I was with GE Water pre-Suez days. And GE Water was a big supporter of Blue Tech and your work. And of course, I would read your intelligence briefings and market studies and was always fascinated to see what the latest and greatest and sort of cutting edge water intelligence looked like. And then, of course, I met you at a number of conferences and everyone loves your accent. Everybody loves who Paul is. And so it's it's tough to be in the sector and not have heard of you or your work. So it's it's so good to have you on. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for the feedback. And um, it, it, it's always been fun to interact with, with both of you throughout the various stages of, of your careers as they've evolved. And uh, it's been a pleasure. All right. So the, so the big sort of, I won't call it elephant in the room because the elephant is out is brave blue world. And that's where we want to start. So as you know, this podcast is about how we tell stories about water, not necessarily about talking about water itself, but how people choose to tell the story of water and what you've done with brave blue world is fascinating because as far as I know, no one in the water industry has done something like this before. So our question for you is just give us a little bit about what Brave Blue World is and then more importantly, why you chose to create a documentary in the water industry when you could have spent your time, energy, money, et cetera, doing anything else? Well, it, this is a water industry project in a sense. So um, I do feel that for all of us who are involved in the sector, there was a collective appetite to want to tell our stories. 
and a collective recognition that perhaps we don't do a good enough job of telling our stories. Um, you know, that dawned on me, and I, I don't think it was only me that it dawned upon, but I mean, you can't go about your life in this sector without seeing incredible innovations, incredible solutions every day, every week. And, and then you look what you read in the newspapers, or you hear on the TV or the news, and it's a very one-sided side of the story. It's all about droughts and wars. It's quite apocalyptic and doom and gloom and alarmist. And it can make people feel despondent that, oh, there's not a lot we can do, it's, you know. And the counterpoint to that is there are lots of things that we can do. And I was particularly struck in certain parts of the world, like Singapore, Israel, the Netherlands, that things really seem to click and they could achieve tremendous things to overcome water challenges. Sometimes that was too much water, sometimes it's too little water. And the common denominator appeared to be that, that people really related to this. Because we all know that you need policy to drive technology adoption, to change regulations, to bring finance to bear, and it all begins with people. You know, unpopular policies don't, don't make their way through because they don't get people elected. So the kind of the brain, uh, the light bulb was there, um, brainwave, I guess. To, and then I discussed this with some people with the Water Environment Federation on a workshop, a retreat workshop we went on in San Francisco a few years back. And we were discussing this issue of partnering for impact. And I said, I think a documentary could work really well because I don't think it's been done before. And people warmed to the idea. And I mean, I started a business and I built a business and I, I know the hard work that it took to make that happen as an entrepreneur. But I can truly say that this project was entrepreneurial, but it seemed that from the get-go, the project almost wanted to happen itself because it, it felt like I was pushing in an open door. The appetite was there. People said, yeah, that's a great idea. We'd love to get involved. How can we, I think WEF <laughs> uniquely said, can we increase the sponsorship rate? That has never happened. Is it, can we double it? I said, yeah, I think we can probably help out there. Yeah, sure. And before I knew it, Suez came on board and Xylem and Laria and DuPont. And I had a half a million dollars, you know, to produce a film. And I'd never produced a film. That was the, the strange thing. So it was quite risky for everybody involved in the project. They were all taking a risk to allow creative freedom to tell the story and to support it. For me, um, what I realized through the journey was some films never get finished. Right. And, you know, that wasn't going to happen with this one. So we, we persevered. But that was the idea in the journey. And then as we went along, we were so fortunate that people like Matt Damon came on board and Jaden Smith and uh, Liam Neeson graciously added his voice to the narration as well. And now we're at a different stage where it's doing what it was meant to do. It's accessible to 200 million people in 29 languages and... Yeah, it's just a lovely moment to, to have reached and we're kind of humbled really by what we've achieved. Well, we're really happy about the collaboration. You know, you're very gracious in telling how the water industry collaborated to get this thing done and to tell water story. And, and so, you know, the fact that it started there and it started with a bunch of water professionals and then you brought in other people is, is quite a good part of the story. story. Well, we all knew that we needed to probably get outside of our own heads because we love talking about the technologies and the principles and the processes. And the reason for the documentary you asked, as opposed to maybe something different, is it can build empathy, particularly if you focus on the human side of the stories. And that was my big learning in this, 
because I did learn a lot, um, was you've got to access the human side of the story so that people will relate to it and then they'll really assimilate the message in the story. So that was a part of the journey for, for me and the team. And one of the things I, I relied heavily upon the directors and the production team to, to help guide me on. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that it's now available to how many people and how many languages? Well, there's like 200 million Netflix subscribers. You know, if you add that to homes, you could multiply that again. And then the 29 languages is, is beyond what we could have hoped for. You know, we were originally going to do this in maybe half a dozen languages. So it's, it's exceeded our expectations. I mean, just, just Netflix itself is, is remarkable, Paul. We, there was a, a blue carpet launch, as it was deemed in Hollywood, for the release of the movie. And there was a lot of buzz, especially in the water industry, of course, about what the movie was going to be about and, you know, you know, who was featured and how the story was told. But to get it on Netflix is just incredible. I mean, it's remarkable. And you, you talk about telling the story of water in the modern era. You almost have to have to include Netflix as part of that story because it is such a big platform for people. So, so how, how did that component of it work out? Was Netflix a piece of it from the beginning or how did you bring them on board? How did you get them excited about the whole thing? Well, we asked and we knocked on the door. We were very fortunate to have a very good contact in at the very top. So, you know, a classic case of somebody knew somebody that um, you read Hastings and the email went directly to read and he then passed it through. And that's incredible. Like that actually crossed his desk and it got directly to um, some of their folks, but it was still a long journey after that. There was no foregone conclusions here. There was no quick wins. Everybody wants to get their content on Netflix. It's a, it's a premier platform, distribution platform. So, you know, I would say it began with three no's and then a yes, right? So, but every time we would get a no, we'd ask why and what, get some feedback from them. And they said, well, you know, just keep in touch with us. It, it might not be right for us right now. We've got a project launching. So we checked back in in a few months and then it eventually got to the point where they said, look, we, we love it. We just, would, if you could help us by making clear calls to actions and helping the Netflix audience to follow the journey. And we said, that's good feedback. That's constructive. We can work with that. So we went back to the team. We sat down with the script writers and we said, how can we solve this? Because it was constructive and we recognized the value in it. And so we knew we had to get Liam Neeson back in studio again, which wasn't going to be easy. So we contacted him. We're in COVID-19 lockdown. He's not going to studio in New York. He's in his country home. And so we said, okay, but, but he was very willing and gracious. He said, I'll do it. So we sent a team up to his house and originally a hurricane came and his electricity went. And it was a mad scramble. It was a really funny few weeks. And, uh, but we, you know, we asked, we kept working with Netflix and they turned out to be a tremendous partner. So the huge value add once we began to engage was, they said, now we'll put you in touch with our graphics agency. And this is one of the same agencies that did the graphic artwork for Frozen, the movie. So suddenly you're in this world where they're working with their algorithms to determine what this person likes and that person likes. And they've got six different visual treatments of the film based on imagery. And then they test this to present it in a way and they work with synopsis. So it was a quite a very collaborative process with them which led to a very good outcome. I think we would all recognize who were involved with it. The film is, is um, you know, it, it was a 
tremendous value add to work with Netflix on the final edits and production. You're listening to the What Are We Talking About podcast. We'll be right back after this short break. This podcast is produced by Water Online, the leading web-based community for water and wastewater professionals. Showcasing the knowledge and authority of industry thought leaders, Water Online provides actionable content from vendors you can trust. And now, back to today's podcast. Well, I know this was a passion project for you. And, you know, it took a lot of time away from, you know, your regular job of uh, running uh, Blue Tech Research. Um, how do you see the, the advantages that, uh, given this film, has helped the company itself? Well, the, the team joked that it gave me something to focus on, and it kept me out of their way. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to be meddling with something and this kind of kept me gainfully occupied while everybody else could get on with, with their own work. Um, the team were fantastic in that they really stepped up and they recognized this was a passion project and that they covered bases and helped provide me some freedom to be able to travel extensively last year. I mean, I scarcely knew what continent I was in from, from week to week. My family scarcely knew. Um, but the, the team really rallied and it, and it turned out it was enriching for the Blue Tech practice in ways that we could not have foreseen. Like for me, I hadn't traveled as extensively in the developing world to study water. I mean, I, I traveled in the developing world, but not exclusively to see water and sanitation issues up close firsthand. So for me, it was a tremendous education and it made me fully appreciate things that I, I you know, I had only really read about before. So it added value and then somehow found its way back into our research work as we thought about atmospheric water capture or we thought about the sanitation economy. Um, there was jeopardy in the project in that there was a, a risk to taking on the passion project. Um, thankfully, we, um, you know, it's worked out beyond our expectations. Um, you know, you, you got to the point where I had the freedom and I guess the backing and the trust of some people in the sector to say, we'll trust you to be a conduit to lead it. And that was a tremendous honor and an opportunity, which I didn't take lightly. I took it very seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew it was a year and um, it it just required that intense focus, like a startup company does, you know, for that short period of time. I also do some confidence from knowing that I had built blue tech and that was a, I didn't truly know what I was doing when I did that either. I was doing it intuitively <laughs> and I just trusted that to a degree and then trusted the people around me sure. um and you know to to a degree I guess it's we you know I don't know whether it's been good or it's not been bad for business um right. to the extent that it's been good it, it's very hard to quantify these things sure, but, um, sure. and that, that's one of the things that Adam and I are always talking about I mean it's hard to quantify we try I mean that's that's the message we want to get across on this podcast but um, you know, it's hard to understand when you do something like that, what the bottom line, it's going to mean for the bottom line. I think I felt the need to give something back and um, not to be, you know, I mean, genuinely, I've worked with the Water Environment Federation for years. It's a volunteer led organization. And it was a dream that I had to do this. It was rattling around in my head for a long, long time. So, you know, I figured I should just do it. And we didn't see any direct link to blue tech, but as I say, it has been enriching because you get a a different global perspective. 
Right. And, and let's face it, if more people in the world, the general public, and we say this a lot, if more people in the world understand the value of water, it's going to make our products and services more valuable as water professionals. So, I mean, in that regard, it's great. It's not only good for you, but it's good for us and, and all the water professionals uh, who sell services and products. But to use a water analogy, you know what they say, a rising tide raises all boats. Exactly. And we all want to have an impact in the world from the work that we do. And to the extent that we can just make people more aware that there is a water problem. One of the things the scriptwriter said to me was, he said, look, you know, you, you got to assume that people don't, they don't, haven't thought about this before. They're not on page four of the book. They're on page one. You know, that's if they even have the book. So we had to tell them there is a water crisis. It's here. It's going to get worse. It will affect you directly. The good news is we have solutions and you're a part of those solutions. So that was the mission. And yes, let's see. I mean, look, when we launched it, I could see the grassroots movement swelling up as people were sharing it. And we were trending on Netflix last weekend. I mean, that's incredible. And that was down to just people spreading the word. You know, it's like the R number we hear a lot about at the moment. If we can just keep one person tells two people, then, you know, we'll keep it going. You learned, you mentioned learning a, a bunch of storytelling techniques and tactics from the production of the film. So you talk about people who are about the design or the script writers or name your multitude of skills you need to produce a film. What have you learned in production of a documentary that you will take back to Blue Tech as a, here's what we could do better from a storytelling perspective that I learned in the world of documentaries and maybe something that our listeners could take away as well and say, hey, if there's something that I can be doing that Paul learned when making this film for my own business, what would make me a more effective storyteller? Well, the, the one thing about working in that medium was it's multidimensional. We were working in four dimensions, not just language, language with images, languages with images and sound and music, and the music adds to it. And every step of the way, we it's like why you, when you look at the credits for one of these films, you always wonder what are all these people doing and what's their role? You know? <laughs> but, but as time went on, you know, we brought in a story editor because we looked at the first code and it was good, but, you know, it could have been better. So we found a story editor from Toronto. She was flown into London. She sat in the studio for a fortnight, helped to provide some really creative ideas and structure. Then the scriptwriter added his flourishes. Everybody did their, their little bit along the way, and including the music. You know, the, the final sound bed was recorded in the Coppola Studios in San Francisco. Um, a key thing that I learned was when we started this project, people said, oh, you need to do your casting. And I said, casting? I said, it's not, you know, it's not like a, an act. These are people aren't actors, but they meant the characters. And we had to find... I guess we were fortunate that we found warm, relatable characters. My key message was that people relate to people, people like people, and they needed to, first of all, relate to the person and the, and the positive impact that it had on their lives. And the stories that we got the most positive response from would have been the lady in, in Kenya and the smile on her face because she had access to sanitation or Beth Koiji, somebody who was driven to help provide water for, for children. So humanizing what we do to understand its broader context in society of the work that we do. Maybe that's something that we can all think more and more about as we communicate. And I think also, Paul, the, 
the idea of we have to look at those fringes, right? I mean, that was a word that that resonated with me, the fringes of society. And I like the way that you didn't talk just about the higher tech, that uh, the aquaporin and, you know, there's, there's what you can do on the ground in Kenya and in India, and there's what we're doing in the research labs that, uh, you know, we're familiar with. And so that broad spectrum that you brought to the film is really engaging to, to the audience. I, you know, it was really great. Like the, the key message that we had to avoid was that there's one solution. We didn't want it to be that there's a silver bullet here and this person's discovered it and therefore the problem solved because that's not what it's like. There's no one silver bullet. And, but there are approaches and ideas. There's a spirit of not wanting to give up and there's a spirit of wanting to solve your problem locally. And that applies whether you're in Chicago, in the MWRD, or, or whether you're in you know, a children's home in Kenya. Sure. Yeah. sure. That, and there's that, more stories to be told. So that, Paul, that, that person-to-person aspect is so important. And when we talk to utility leaders, especially, their job is to provide clean, safe drinking water 24-7 to the populations that they, that they serve. And I think that many people get tied up in the day-to-day operations, the, the leaks, the pipe bursts, the, you know, the water quality. All of that's very important. But when it comes to the, peop- the person-to-person aspect that you're talking about, how, how would you, if you were talking to a water utility leader and you said, I just created this documentary, one of the most important parts was we have to show humanized stories about water. How do you suggest a water utility go about doing that or a small water startup or even an infotech company like Blue Tech? You know, how do you, how do you translate that into like a real world practice? Well, I think there's so many different mediums, um, like podcasts are fantastic. That's why I think this, what you're doing is amazing. Um, th- those reach wide audiences with stories as well. And many utilities are doing actually embracing podcasts. I notice it quite a lot more with UK water utilities that I can think of, like Southern Water and others. Um, democratize it, I think, that let people feel that, you know, they have a story to tell. They might recognize with something, they might empathize or see something that's in that film, for example, that they feel, wow, well, we can do that here or we're doing something that's not the same, but it's it's aligned with it. And within every utility, I know when we met with Orange County, they said their biggest uh, achievement was communications. And they were told when they started, they said, this is not an engineering project, the Orange County Water Reclamation Project. It's a communications project. Um, Singapore works on that for years and years with children. They really engage with children. It's on the elementary school curriculum. So I guess engaging with your local community, be that a school or a university, um, that's probably a very good place to start. We love the hopeful message. You know, one of the best lines of the movie was uh, Matt Damon saying, how lucky are we to be the ones that solve this problem? And you know, that was meant, I think, for everybody, but especially I took it as a water professional, you know, that we're saving millions of lives. And, and you know, I think it's, it's incumbent upon every water professional to feel that sense of, of accomplishment, of, of being able to say, you know, recognize that, you know, we're doing important work out there. Yeah, we are, you know, we do. And that's what drives us as a sector. It's a very collegial industry to work with. 
in, even though you know many people will be competitors, but when you get together at, at different events like WebTech, you don't really feel that. You just feel like there's that collective, you're sharing information, you're you're describing what you saw on this project, and there's that drive to bring it forward. And you know, I was reminded about uh, something I learned in an unlikely place. I went to a, a biosolids committee meeting at WEF one year at 7 a.m. And the people who show up at 7 a.m., you know, are they're, they're pretty dedicated. But the session opened up and the chairman said, I am a student of happiness. And I went, am I in the wrong meeting? How did I, like, why is he talking about this? And he was talking about volunteering and why people came together. And he said, human beings derive happiness from working together collectively towards a common shared goal. We actually are hardwired to do that. That's why society functions. We actually like working together to achieve something together. That's part of our makeup. And I think as an industry of water professionals, we definitely feel that, whether we recognize it consciously a lot of the time, but we do feel it. And yeah, if you can harness that, and it's lovely that people like Matt Damon somehow captured that spirit very simply in a few words. And, you know, I think he's also correct. I think it is solvable in our lifetime. All right, Paul, we're coming up on time and we've got a final question for you. You can take a little bit of time to think about it if you need it. But imagine that you had an airplane and there's a banner flying behind that airplane. And you get to fly this banner in front of the home of every water professional in the world. What does that banner say? What do you want them to know? Just water professionals, correct? That's right. Right. The 30,000 plus people that are going to be listening to this, fingers crossed, <laughs> not more. We're all in it together and we can make a difference. Ah, beautiful. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, Paul. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. You know, I, I know we've gotten gold from you for our uh, audience and, uh, you know, some really great takeaways. So we really appreciate uh you know, what you've done for the water industry, both in terms of blue tech research and also obviously with that brave blue world. So oh, thanks again. Yeah, it's been an honor and a pleasure.